What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. We have a packed episode today, so I want to get right into it. First up, we're going to be talking about the NBA Finals preview. Game one is tonight in Denver, Colorado, with the Nuggets taking on the Miami Heat for the NBA championship. But more importantly, I want to talk about the finances behind this finals. And specifically, I want to talk about how Denver and Miami are two of the smaller market teams and could end up costing the NBA billions of dollars in future revenue. Then we'll stick with the theme of the NBA and talk about Bob Myers' departure as an executive for the Golden State Warriors. Now, like everyone knows that the Golden State Warriors have been one of the best teams in the NBA over the last decade. They've won several championships and they've made a lot of money. Their valuation has gone up like crazy. But I want to try to pinpoint exactly how much Bob Myers has worked to this franchise over the last decade. Then we're going to be talking about Lionel Messi. How could we not? A new rumor broke yesterday saying that MLS team Inter Miami and Barcelona are working together on a deal that would see Messi sign first with Inter Miami, then go directly on loan to Barcelona to play one to two years, side skirting financial fair play uh, rules that they cannot currently beat. And then he will come back to Miami to finish his career as an MLS player. There's a lot to cover here, so let's get right into it. Okay, so game one of the NBA Finals starts tonight. As I said, game one's being played in Denver, Colorado. We have the Denver Nuggets versus the Miami Heat. And this is really the tale of two completely different teams in my mind. If you look at the Denver Nuggets, they're the number one seed in the Western Conference. They just beat the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron James in the Western Conference Finals to make it to the NBA Finals. They have Nikola Jokic, who uh, was winning MVPs. He didn't win it this year, but he's obviously one of the best players in the NBA today. And they had an amazing team this year. They were favored to get there. They're going to be favored in the series. They have a great, great, great team. And then on the other side of things, you have the Miami Heat, who, again, were in the finals previously over the last couple of years, but they were an eight seed this playoffs. They actually had to play in the NBA playoff play-in tournament to get into the next round of the playoffs. They beat the Celtics in the Western Conference Finals, and now they're headed to the NBA Finals. They have, obviously, you've probably heard it by now, a bunch of undrafted players, Caleb Martin, Max Drews, Gabe Vincent. They have Duncan Robinson. They also have Bam Adebayo, who's the 14th pick. Tyler Hero is the 13th pick. And even their coach, Eric Spolstra, started from within the organization. He was a video coordinator for the Miami Heat in 1995. 1995. So he's been with them for roughly 27, 28 years, depending on how you count it. And it's a really, 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 really cool story. Now, the one thing I will mention about this series is outside of the basketball talk, there's other places where you can find a breakdown of the X's and O's and talk about who's actually going to win this series. The thing I want to talk about is the impact that this series could potentially have on the business of the NBA. And the easiest way to look about this is through one specific lens, in my opinion. It's TV ratings. So the NBA has had a difficult time with TV ratings over the last few years. If you look at this year alone, the regular season average for games was 1.59 million viewers. And the last four seasons, if you add those up, which includes, of course, two COVID-impacted seasons, it's among the lowest rated seasons in the last 30 years. So viewership has been on a steep decline for the NBA for several years now. And there's a bunch of different reasons for this, right? People have talked about streaming. They've talked about illegal streams of games, not only other networks taking these games off, but but illegally covering them as well. And people have dropped cable, right? That's a big part of it too. But I think ultimately what we're going to see here is that the NBA would have rather the Lakers versus the Celtics. Like people joke about this online, but it's absolutely true. They say they don't care, but from a business perspective, it certainly makes a difference. And I'll tell you why. The Los Angeles Lakers are the number two media market from a size perspective in the NBA. 
Number one is New York City, 7.73 million homes. The Knicks obviously weren't going to make it. Brooklyn didn't make it. LA is next, 5.83 million homes in Los Angeles. That's why the viewership was so good for the Western Conference Finals. You had LA in it. It's huge, right? Chicago, Philadelphia, Dallas, Atlanta, Houston, Washington. And then number nine on the list is Boston, 2.59 million homes. And while they kind of like just barely squeak in the top 10, that's still obviously good. But two, Boston's a crazy sports town. The share of homes that actually watch these games is much higher than some of these other areas that might have more homes. So it would have been a home run for the NBA to get two iconic franchises in the Lakers and the Celtics in the NBA Finals. But selfishly, I don't really care, right? Like I like looking at the numbers and stuff like that, but I also love that there's parity across the NBA now where we can get a Denver versus Miami Final and they can go and play. And it's not just superstar after superstar switching teams and going to the finals. It's not nearly as fun in my in my opinion, right, than when that happens. And I think it's much more interesting this way. But again, that doesn't mean the NBA feels that way. And they don't feel that way for one specific reason. It's because they're currently in the middle of an exclusive negotiating window with their TV partners on a new media rights deal. So for those of you that don't know, the NBA currently has a nine-year, $24 billion media rights deal with Walt Disney and Warner Brothers. They pay uh, $2.6 billion average annual value. So again, nine years, $24 billion, $2.6 billion a year. And the NBA wants to renegotiate that deal. And they're looking for a nine-year deal that's worth between $45 billion and $75 billion. So they essentially want to go from earning $2.6 billion a year in media rights to five to $8 billion, right? So they want to double or triple their current media rights deal is the easiest way to think about it. They're expected to sign deals with more than two companies for this deal. My guess is you get a percentage of games on free TV, call it ABC, Fox, NBC, CBS. And then you also get simulcast cable games on streaming services simply due to the decline in cable subscribers. So again, they're probably going to go negotiate with a few other people after this. But right now, they're in an exclusive negotiating window with their current broadcast television partners. And this is important because viewership has been good for the playoffs so far. The Western Conference Finals between the Nuggets and the Lakers averaged almost 8 million viewers, which was the most watched Conference Finals in five years. And then the Eastern Conference Finals was very, very similar. The Heat versus Celtics averaged 7.4 million viewers, which was the most watched Eastern Conference series on TNT in a decade. So the numbers have been really strong throughout the postseason so far, and the NBA would love to keep that up, but it's a little bit more difficult when the Lakers are out and the Celtics are out now. And you have Denver who is 16th biggest media market in the NBA with only 1.79 million homes, and Miami, Fort Lauderdale, which is even smaller, the 18th biggest NBA media market with 1.72 million homes. So again, I don't know what's exactly going to happen from a TV perspective. If you look at the ratings for the NBA over the last four, five, six, seven years, they're averaging anywhere between, you know, call it seven and a half on the low end during a COVID year in 2020 to 15 million on a high end in 2019. They had 12.4 million last year viewers. So my guess is NBA is probably budgeting in something around 10, 11 million viewers per game, depending on how long the series goes, you know, if there's blowouts, all that stuff kind of depends too. But ultimately, if they see a number 10 to 11 million, I think they're probably going to be satisfied with that. The bigger question is, can they go above that? Do they go significantly below that? Does it impact their current media rights negotiation? And those are all things that we will have to see. But again, I don't want to just talk about numbers either, because 
at the end of the day, this is sports. This is fun. People should be anticipating kind of the quality of the play and things like that. There's a few storylines that I want to touch here quickly. Again, Eric Spolstra was hired from within the organization as a video coordinator. Udonis Haslam, he's not going to play a minute in this series unless something happens at the way in where they can get him some kind of cheers right from the home crowd. But he has an amazing story. He was drafted in undrafted in 2002. He ends up going to France for a year. He loses a bunch of weight, 50 pounds in eight months. He comes back to the United States, signs a deal with the Miami Heat in 2003, and he's been with the team ever since. 20 years, 20 years on one NBA team. He's a three-time NBA champion. He's now looking for his fourth championship this year. He previously used to contribute a lot. He doesn't play, obviously, anymore. But he's an older guy. I think he's, uh, you know, 42, 43 years old at this point. So he's getting up there in age and uh, he's simply on the team to instill that heat culture in the younger players. And he's got $70 million in career earnings. He's the only undrafted player in NBA history to lead a franchise in rebounds. So very, 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 very cool. I love stories like that where you see people who just grinded it out for decades at a time, mastered their craft, put in the work and hung around. Because as anyone who knows that follows professional sports, it's not easy to do. It's really, really, really difficult to do. You have to have the personality for it. You have to have the work ethic for it. You have to have the drive for it. So kudos to Udonis Haslam. He's had an incredible career, and I'm sure he would be very, very happy to end it on a good note with a championship. But a couple of the other things are Pat Riley. He's made it to 25% of all NBA finals. I saw the stat the other day. As a player, coach, or executive, he's now participated in 25% of all NBA finals which is just an absolutely ridiculous stat and speaks to how influential he is around the NBA. The Heat are the first eight seed to reach the final since 1999 and will be the first to win the finals. And again, they have nine undrafted players, more than any team in the NBA, and a significant number of them, called three to four or five of them, contribute to the finals team. So very, very good storylines here in this year's NBA finals, both from a personal perspective of kind of the players on the field, but also the financial perspective of what's happening in the greater picture. The TV rights... You know, I don't prescribe to the fact that normal fans should necessarily compare about how many people watch the game. If you enjoy the NBA, watch the NBA. Who cares, right? Just watch the NBA. But ultimately, these things have an impact on everything else around the league, from player salaries to new stadium deals to everything else. So it's important that the, the NBA maximizes the advantages that they have, whether it's increased marketing, whether it's trying to get more attention on these cities, Denver and Miami, whatever it ends up being, I'm sure we're in for a good series. And I hope the NBA is able to maximize the value out of these deals too. Getting $75 billion on a new media rights deal will be absolutely tremendous, not only for the valuation of these teams, but more importantly, the quality of the product that they're putting on the court because the players will be making so much more money and it has a downstream impact on everything. This thing goes unnoticed most of the time, but if you're making more money, everyone's seeing these role players in the NBA making 30, 40, $50 million. And what do the kids say? What do the kids say? They say, my parents don't want me to play football because you can get hurt. We've seen this. The youth participation in tackle football has fallen off a cliff. What's the next best option? Some people might say baseball. Some people might say hockey. Some people might say soccer or football, whatever. Some people are undoubtedly going to say the ba basketball, and they're going to say that you can earn a lot of money even as a six man, whatever it is. You can go to the NBA and you can make a good living, obviously, and have a long career. So this is something to watch, and it's going to be something that I will be keeping an eye on, and I will keep you guys updated as the numbers come out throughout the series. All right, everyone, a quick interruption from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Hyperice. So Hyperice is one of the fastest growing companies in sports. You've probably seen their products by now, but they are the official recovery technology partner of the NBA, MLB, PGA Tour, and UFC. And a bunch of different athletes all around the world are using their stuff, like Patrick Mahomes, Erling Holland, people like that. Now, I'm super pumped about this partnership for one reason. I've been using Hyperice products for years. I use their massage gun and their heated back wrap several times each week. 
Anytime I have a tough workout or my back's hurting me a little bit, I throw it on and it is a game changer for my health and wellness. I think the coolest part for me personally is that I can use the same stuff that professional athletes are using. The same thing that Patrick Mahomes uses on the sideline to loosen up his muscles, I can use at home. The same thing Erlen Holland uses on his back to loosen it up before bed, I can use at home. I think that's absolutely incredible and I highly recommend their stuff. So the best part is they are giving all of you, my podcast listeners, 15% off your order. So start recovering like a professional athlete today. Go to hyperice.com and use code Joe, 15 for 15% off your order. That's Joe, J-O-E, 15, all caps at hyperice.com. 15% off your order. Let's get back to today's episode. The next basketball thing I want to talk about today is Bob Myers. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to give some context on kind of how important he has been to the Golden State Warriors. So for those that don't know, Bob Myers worked with the Warriors. I think it was 2011 when he got there. He was an assistant GM, and then he became the GM in 2012. Eventually, he became president in, I think, 2015. So he's been there for quite a while now. He's seen, overseen their run to four NBA championships. He's been named the NBA Executive of the Year two times in 2014 and 2016. And he helped draft Clay Thompson. He drafted Draymond Green. He signed Steve Kerr. He signed Kevin Durant. He's had a huge impact. And the owners yesterday at the press conference, or I guess two days ago at this point, were saying that, right? They were saying that Kevin Durant was all him. He got that deal done. He wanted that deal done. He pursued him. He got him, all of that, right? And what do you know? They go out and they win another couple championships and they built a dynasty, right, is really what it is. And if you want to say, okay, he didn't sign Steph Curry, that's true. But I certainly don't think the Warriors would have been who they are without him. And again, we can look at the numbers and just say, the Warriors valuation has increased over 2,100% since 2010 when the team was bought for $315 million. It's now worth $7 billion in 2023. Hell yeah, right? How much did Bob Myers have to do with that? We don't know, right? Obviously, championships have a point in that, but they also have a new stadium, a $1.4 billion team-funded arena in San Francisco that opened at the beginning of the 2019-2020 season. So real estate is a huge part of this. They own that arena themselves. That's obviously included in the valuation. But more importantly, this is something that we talked about a few weeks ago, but it's the idea that winning in the NBA more than any other professional sports league, specifically against the NFL, is much more important from a financial perspective. And the reason for that is simple. The NBA teams get to keep about like 30 to 35% of their overall revenue when it comes to, yeah, I think it's 33% of their overall revenue in the NBA you get to keep from playoff games. So any money that you earn during a playoff game, home playoff games, you get to keep about 33% of that revenue. And the reason why this is important is because the Golden State Warriors have obviously hosted and won a lot of playoff games. So there was an article in The Athletic a few years ago that talked about the Warriors specifically, and it broke down some of the numbers. It said, the Warriors earn about $7 million per home game in the first and second rounds. So first and second rounds, every home game that they have, they're making about $7 million. Then they make about $10 million in the conference finals. So $7 million for first two, $10 million for the third round in the conference finals. And then when you're, if you're able to reach the finals, it's $16 million. So again, $7 million, $10 million, and $16 million, depending on what round you're playing in, in the playoffs. If you add all that up for the Warriors over the last couple of years, they're making over $100 million essentially every year that they have a deep run into the playoffs. And when you divide that by 33%, it's still $40, you know, $50 million, depending on how much money they actually bring in in a year. And more importantly, this is money that no other teams are making, right? 
what other team over the last few years, I mean, the Celtics have played in a bunch of Eastern Conference finals over the last few years, but they haven't played in the uh, finals nearly as much as the Warriors. They haven't won nearly as much as the Warriors. And there's other teams that you can consider are, are a couple steps down too, but no one has had the success of the Warriors over the last decade, right? So as the NBA is growing in popularity, more money is coming in, they're making record revenue every single year. The biggest benefit of that from a team perspective has been the Warriors. And again, a big part of that has been Bob Myers because he hired the coach, he drafted the players, he's been in charge of the organization from an executive perspective over most of the last decade. And I think that cannot go understated. He's built them into a dynasty and their entire economic system is built on this revenue, right? It's built on the idea that they can continue to go back into the playoffs. It's going to be money that no other team in the league is going to make and it's going to make it possible for them to continue to overspend on players to keep making it happen, right? So if you think about what happened in this past offseason, Jordan Poole signed a huge contract extension. They had these massive payroll and tax bills that they had to keep on rolling down the line because they wanted to continue to win. And the ability of Bob Myers to make that happen from a front office perspective and an executive perspective has helped them do that. So again, it's a little bit difficult to pick out exactly how much Bob Myers is worth. And Woj actually said something really interesting when he broke the news. He said that Myers declined multiple offers from ownership that would have made him the highest paid executive in the NBA. But Myers also told Woj that it wasn't about the money and it was, quote, it's just time. Right. So he just said, hey, look, it wasn't about the money. They were willing to pay me more than anyone else in the NBA. I just didn't want to do it anymore. It's just time. But Woj also like weirdly indicated that should Myers return to team sports eventually, which is interesting because he somewhat indicated that it could be outside the NBA. He said that he'll be one of the most pursued executives in modern North American professional sports history, which I think is true, which again, I think is true, but it brings me up to the point of like, What's Bob Myers up to? Is there something weird happening there? I don't know if you guys have seen the meme of the hands in the air. That That is me right now, right? Because what's going on here? Why is Woj wording it in that way? And why would Bob Myers just retire kind of randomly at the end of this year, at the end of his contract, when he could still be one of the highest paid executives and actually the highest paid executive in the NBA? But regardless, that's neither here nor there. We'll see what he ends up doing. I root for his success and his happiness. And I'm excited for the Warriors to move on and, and, and see what they can do here, if they can continue their dynasty and we'll see what happens. But ultimately, he undoubtedly has had a huge impact on their financial performance over the last few years. All right. The next thing I want to talk about is Lionel Messi. So I'm sure some of you guys have seen this news now. Lionel Messi news broke from a French newspaper yesterday saying that Lionel Messi is in talks to do a partnership essentially with Inter Miami and Barcelona. And these two clubs are working together to essentially skirt financial fair play regulations to allow Barcelona to essentially sign him, but not really. And let me explain. So the way this would work is when Messi left Barcelona for PSG in 2021, it was because Barca couldn't navigate financial fair play rules and offer him a new contract. They just couldn't do it. It wasn't allowed. So he leaves, he goes to PSG. That contract was two years. It had an option for a third year. It's going to be expiring on June 30th. And there's been rumors spread throughout that Barcelona and Messi would like a reunion. I actually flew to Barcelona a few weeks ago, or months ago, I guess, at this point, And I sat down with the Barcelona president, Juan Laporta, and he was very honest about it, right? Like the feeling I got when I left that conversation was the idea that he doesn't want it to be his legacy that Messi left under his watch, right? There were some things that he couldn't control necessarily and, and things happen how they happen. But I got the feeling, and he didn't explicitly say this, but I got the feeling that he would love to bring Messi back. And I imagine that's probably the truth and most people can probably believe that. So now they're working through an idea of like how they can do that. If 
they don't have the financial situation and the budgetary constraints that make it extremely complicated to sign him. How do they do it? And this is where Miami comes in, right? Because Barcelona has a bunch of ideas. They've been working with La Liga for for months now. They've been saying that they're going to be cutting wages. They're going to be ending several other contracts. They're going to be non-extending other players. And they're basically trying to reduce payroll to sign some new players, one of them potentially being Messi. Now, La Liga has rumored to not be very happy with this and say that it's not exactly where it needs to be. So the next best step here is to reach out to a partner and figure out how you can get this deal done. And if you're Miami, this makes a hell of a lot of sense too, because Messi doesn't want to leave premier football, right? Like if you look at where he's at in his career, he wants to still continue to play UCL football for the next few years. And he can, right? His quality of play, you know, is certainly still up there. It's better than MLS play. And he would, you know, quite frankly, dominate MLS if he came here today. So I think what's going to happen is Messi has probably told them, I want to continue to play over here. Barcelona would be amazing. Find a way to work it out. If you can, I'll do it. And for Miami, you look at this and you say, we don't have the option, right? If you just take it off the table and you say, we don't have the option to sign him today, which I believe to be the truth. Everyone says, oh, they can go get him. They can compete. They can offer him franchises. They can offer him equity. They can offer him all this stuff. If he doesn't want to play in Miami or for MLS in general, it doesn't matter what you offer him, right? So I think Miami is essentially saying, we know we're not going to be able to sign him today. So let's do this kind of like cross the road signing where we actually sign him and then we loan him out to Barcelona for 6, 12, 18 months, allow him to go continue his career there. And then when he's done, we'll set a predetermined time frame. He'll come back to Miami to play in the MLS. He'll still be a quality player, obviously. He'll be better than most of the people in the MLS at that point, regardless, depending on his age. And they'll have a new stadium that opens in 2025, and it will be his arrival. And I think that's, you know, that's a fair trade, in my opinion, which is the idea that Miami has to do something if you want to get a player of that caliber. You're not just going to convince him to come here on necessarily money alone or your reputation or the growing league or his relationship with David Beckham. That's just not going to happen. Look at what happened to Beckham when they brought Beckham here. I assume most of you probably know this by now. I've talked about it several times. When Beckham got to the United States in the early 2000s, he was leaving you know, massive amounts of salary. I think he took a third of his salary here in the United States. It was $6.5 million per year, five-year, $32.5 million deal to join the LA Galaxy. It was a 70% pay cut from his deal at Real Madrid at the time. And the truth is that he made a shit ton more money. He made $250 million through his deal with the LA Galaxy because he had a revenue sharing agreement in place that gave him a cut of everything, ticket sales, concessions, shirts, all that stuff. Plus, he had a bunch of sponsorship deals that were native to the US that he wouldn't have gotten previously. But more importantly, outside of the $250 million, he got the right to buy an expansion team for MLS for just $25 million in the future. And that number didn't look insane when he got here. That was the going rate for franchise. It was actually a little bit higher than was going. I think it was $10 million the last team had paid when he arrived. But by the time he exercised that clause, teams were going for $150 million. Nashville SC paid $150 million to join the league in 2017. So he got a massive, massive, massive discount from an expansion fee perspective. And what have we seen now? These rates only go up. San Diego just paid $500 million to join MLS. So MLS is going to have to offer Messi something similar. I don't think they're just going to give him a team in Vegas or somewhere else, right? We've gotten to the point where that's a $500 million deal, and it's going to be really, really, really difficult to convince people to do that. But there was a rumor months ago at this point that he was going to be receiving equity in Inter-Miami. I could see that happening at a discounted rate, even if it's, I don't think it's going to be free, right? I think the rumor was 35% equity. They're not going to give him 35% equity in a team that's worth $600 million for free. I just, I, I don't think they're going to do that, but who knows? But he obviously has a good 
relationship with David Beckham, who's co-owner. The team only makes $56 million a year in revenue, and they operate at a loss of $5 million a year. So there's not a bunch of leeway here of what they can do from a financial perspective. So you have to get creative, whether it's equity, whether it's expansion teams, whether it's revenue sharing, whatever it is, you have to find out a way to get creative to be able to get him here. Because we already know that there's other huge offers on the table. There's a number of clubs that would love to sign Messi for outrageous amounts of money. There was the rumor about Saudi Arabia months ago at this point that was $400 million annually, which would be the most lucrative deal in the history of the sport, and $200 million more than Cristiano Ronaldo's deal with Saudi. So again, I think my, my gut is telling me, and I've been you know beating this drum for years, is that we will eventually see Messi in Miami my hope is that it's not when he's 45 years old and it's just kind of like the retirement gig and all that and he comes here and he gets paid. My hope is that he has some juice left in his legs when he gets here and he can really play. And that would be within you know the next couple of years. So we'll see what happens. I'm excited at the fact that this could happen. I live in Miami, so that would be amazing to get him here with a new stadium. You know, The crowds would be epic. There's this uh, video I saw it was two years ago at this point when Messi visits Miami a lot. He has a bunch of real estate here. His family has places here too. So that's another reason why I think we'll probably see it happen. But he visits here sometimes. And the crowds when he goes on Miami Beach, are it's it's unlike anything you'll ever see in U.S. professional sports. We talk about LeBron James. We talk about Patrick Mahomes. We talk about people like that. It is not even comparable. It's not even comparable. I've seen those players at these events. It is not even comparable, the type of crowds and the attention that these athletes get when they go places. Messi would, especially in South Florida and Miami, he would bring a completely different environment. He would draw just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people at all of these, you know, at, at, at in attendance a year for Miami. The unfortunate part is that they're only building a stadium that I think has a capacity of 25,000 people. So they may sell out those tickets pretty quickly and they may end up, you know, going for a lot on the secondary market. But my hope is that this gets figured out at some point. It, it's a messy situation, to say the least. There's been rumors, it feels like, every single week on where he's going. So I don't want to present this as, like, it's game over, fact, done, Miami's getting him. But it does seem to make logical sense if he wants to go back to Barcelona and eventually wants to come to Miami too. Those are the two unknowns, right? Does he want to go back to Barcelona? It certainly seems that way. Does he want to play for MLS eventually, and specifically Miami? It seems that way as well. And if those are both true, then this deal makes a lot of sense, and I could see why he would do it. All right, last but not least, I want to talk about one more thing. And this is slightly off topic, but I think it's kind of interesting and sort of funny. So some of you probably saw the other day that I tweeted out about Mark Zuckerberg's time for the Murph workout. So for those of you that don't know, the Murph is an exercise. It's a hero workout, which is essentially CrossFit. CrossFit does these things called hero wads, which are hero workout of the days. They're named after, essentially what they're doing is they're honoring men and women who have fallen in the line of duty, heroes. And this one is called the Murph. It's very famously done on Memorial Day after a, a Navy lieutenant named Michael Murphy. He was killed in action in Afghanistan on June 28, 2005. And before we get into Zuckerberg and the Murph and the workout, I want to give you a little bit of context on this because, frankly, I just think it's cool, right? This is one of the things that I like about this platform and my ability to do this on my own is just share things that I think are interesting and things that I think are valuable and cool for you guys. So Lieutenant Murphy was killed in the line of duty. His story is absolutely you know, fascinating, heroic, and amazing. He was an officer in charge of a four-man SEAL team. It was an operation they were on on June 28th. They were spotted by three goat Herders, uh, herders is uh, essentially what happened. They were detained, the the goat herders, and then they were released. And essentially what they did was they went and got Taliban fighters, alerted them of the Navy SEALs presence, and a gun battle broke out on a mountain. And the unfortunate part about the situation was there was no ability for them to 
call in emergency evacuation on this mountain. They had no service, right? So they're in this full-on gunfight on the side of a mountain against Taliban fighters, and they don't have the ability to call in emergency evacuation or backup, essentially. So what happens? Murphy starts moving away from the, the mountain rocks, what they were using to essentially shield themselves from gunfire and protect themselves. He goes out into the open deliberately to essentially get cell phone service. He went in and he goes to a different area, essentially, and he's out in the open now. He's trying to find the service. He's getting shot at. He doesn't give a shit. He calls the quick reaction force at an airbase nearby and requests assistance, very calmly, supposedly, and tells them the unit's location, the size of the enemy force, while requesting immediate support for his team. At one point, they say that he was actually shot in the back, causing him to drop the transmitter. He then picks it back up, completes the call, and continues firing at the enemy, who was closing in. He's severely, severely wounded. He eventually returns to his position with his men and continues the battle. As a result, he ends up getting extracted with the other SEALs, but he, he ends up dying. There was a rocket-propelled grenade that hit the helicopter, caused it to crash, and it killed all 16 men on board. So it's a very, very unfortunate situation. He's obviously a hero and someone that you want to remember on days like Memorial Day. And the way that people have historically done this is through this workout called Murph. So it's something that he would do when he was abroad and he was in Afghanistan. He would strap on a 20-pound weighted vest or body armor. He would run one mile. He would do 100 push-ups, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and another mile run. So you're essentially sandwiching a bunch of push-ups, pull-ups, and squats with a mile run on each side while you're wearing a 20-pound vest. Now, look, I don't know if any one of you have done this yet. I did it once before. It is miserable, right? It is not a lot of fun. It's very, very, very difficult. It really kicks your ass, and, and I think it's kind of unexpected to a lot of people too. But the reason I want to talk about this is because Mark Zuckerberg posted on Facebook saying that he did the workout this year, and I tweeted about it. And I simply tweeted about it because I thought it was interesting, and I was like, look, you know, this guy is worth $100 billion. He runs Meta now. Instagram, all these other apps. And he did the Murph in what was a really, really impressive time. He did it in under 40 minutes, 39 minutes and 58 seconds. He said, right, there's no video, but he says he did it in 39 minutes and 58 seconds. And to give you some context on that, they did the Murph workout as part of one of the, the workouts at the 2015 CrossFit Games. Mark Zuckerberg's time would have placed him in the top five at the CrossFit Games that year. And again, there's some nuance to this. One, there was a heat wave that year in Los Angeles. So it was obviously made the workout more difficult. And I think like, you know, everyone was commenting on the tweet saying, this is just bullshit. There's no way this is true. Cap, bullshit, whatever. We don't believe them. We need video, et cetera. And I think the easiest way to frame this is that personally, this is just my personal opinion. You take it for what it is. I don't necessarily think that Mark Zuckerberg is probably lying. For those of you that don't know, he's gotten really, really, really into fitness recently. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast. He talks a lot about Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and how much he's been doing that and enjoying that. He had Dana White close down an entire UFC event for him in October where they, him and other Facebook employees were able to watch the UFC fight without any media there. No one else was there. He did that. So then he's gotten into other combat sports too. He actually participated recently in a 149-pound division of a, of a jiu-jitsu competition. He won it and then placed silver in another event. So look, he's been into this thing a lot. He has a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach that is the same coach from Daniel Cormier and a bunch of other UFC fighters as well. So it's something that he's investing a lot of time and I imagine money into too, and he's gotten into really good shape. So I think that's part of this is like, it's certainly possible. And the reason why I think it's possible is because I don't think he did the workout like everyone else. So the way that the, the Murph workout works is that specifically at the CrossFit Games and the way that it's traditionally supposed to be done is unpartitioned, which means that you're just moving from one exercise to the next. You're not breaking it up. So you would put on the vest, you would run one mile, you would do all 100 pull-ups. 
Then you would do all 200 push-ups. Then you would do all 300 air squats. Then you would run another mile and you'd be done. Now, the way that it's been scaled down is to unpartition it or partition it by breaking up the workout. And the way that they did this is to get more people involved. So people that can't do all of that straight. I mean, 100 pull-ups in a row is fucking difficult. I don't care how strong you are. So the idea that you want to be able to do the workout is to break it up. So some people will do, well, they'll break it up. They'll say, hey, look, I'm going to do 20 rounds of five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, and 15 air squats. Or maybe they'll do 10 rounds of 10 pull-ups, 20 push-ups, and 30 air squats. The idea being that if you break it up and you do different exercises back to back, your your muscles are able to last longer and you can do the workout easier. So my guess is one, he did that, right? He broke up the workout. He did, you know, sets of 10 or, or sets of five, whatever it is, but he broke up the workout. My next guess is that he it looked like he did it indoors, which probably means he has a treadmill there and he did all the exercises next to each other. The CrossFit Games workouts were obviously outdoors during a heat wave. You're not next to each other when you're doing a bunch of these things. So you're, you're running around the stadium, you're going back in, there's a crowd, there's all these other things that, that kind of add difficulty to it. And then other things include, he probably did kipping pull-ups, right? Because you know anyone who has ever done CrossFit before has done kipping pull-ups. And while they're, you know, designed specifically for CrossFit and stuff like that, they are certainly easier than just strict pull-ups. I can do a considerable amount more of kipping pull-ups than strict pull-ups. So I think that's part of it too, is that if you're doing that, it makes it a little bit easier too. And then there's some other things that I, I think probably happen from a partitioning standpoint and things like that. But ultimately, I kind of believe the time, right? Like everyone was saying, you know, this is bullshit. I don't know why he would lie. You know, he doesn't have a huge advantage to gain from lying. He's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, he's worth $100 billion. I doubt he really cares what people think about him, but he's clearly gotten into fitness. He probably has chefs that make his every meal. He's really in on his diet. He's training, you know, these things become a whole hell of a lot easier. You obviously have to put in the work. You don't just get it in shape for paying money, but there are things that you can do to make it easier. And if he is putting his time and effort into this, we know that individuals like this, I don't want to even use Jeff Bezos as an example because you know he's certainly working out to some degree, but I think it's probably a different level than what Mark Zuckerberg is doing. And if you've ever read anything about Mark Zuckerberg or talked to any people that work for him, he's obviously very driven and is one of the most determined people that they say is in Silicon Valley. So I don't necessarily doubt that he did it. I think it's a very, very, very impressive time, but I do think that there's some nuance to this and caveats that probably make it a little less impressive to the naked eye or someone that doesn't necessarily understand it. And just reads top five CrossFit time. That's not what I was intending to do. I just wanted to give a little context around kind of how impressive the time was. But again, this is why I love this platform because I can just, you know, talk about things that I want and things that I like and things that I think are interesting. And I hope that you guys do too. All right, that's it for today. I hope everyone has a great day. Enjoy the NBA finals. We'll be back here on Friday to talk about a few different other things going on in the sports business world. As always, don't forget the Gentleman's Agreement. Share this show with your friends. I create all of this content for free for you. So help me help you by growing the show. Thanks so much, and we'll talk tomorrow.